This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 2nd, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, since the start of the COVID-19 outbreak, we've published extensively on patient management. And today I'd like to look at how much of an impact those findings are having in the hospital. So let's start with the latest information. Today we published the results of a large WHO-sponsored trial looking at several treatments for hospitalized patients. Can you tell us how that trial worked? Steve, this trial, which is called Solidarity, is a multi-center trial conducted in several countries. The goal was to make the protocol as simple as possible so that it could be used in parallel by a number of investigators who had different access to drugs and resources, and also had different background uses of conventional therapies. The trial has an adaptive design, so although it began with four drugs, Three were dropped after they failed to show efficacy, and new ones have been added since. In some ways, the trial was similar to the multicenter recovery trial, which was performed in the UK. To make it simple, investigators only had to record information that would be collected as part of the standard care of patients. And randomization was performed in each hospital, depending on which drugs were available at that time. It's important to keep in mind, as I said before, that the background standard of care undoubtedly varied from place to place as well. However, the randomization process tried to take this into account by assigning similar numbers of patients to treatment and control groups in each hospital. This enabled the trial to enroll more than 11,000 patients between March and late October when these interim results were published. So as I said, the study looked at four drugs that were thought to have activity at the time the study was started back in March. the study was open label so that the investigators and the patients knew which drugs they were administering or receiving. The drugs they included were hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, which was administered in combination with ritonavir, interferon beta-1a, and remdesivir. The first three drugs were stopped early because of futility, with hydroxychloroquine stopped first in June, and then lopinavir in July, and interferon in October. Each drug was administered at relatively standard doses, as much as we know how to dose these things in this disease, though remdesivir was given for 10 days before trial results suggested that there wasn't much of a difference between five and 10 days. And the common practice now would be to give it for five days. The primary outcome was in-hospital mortality. There were two secondary outcomes, initiation of mechanical ventilation and duration of hospitalization. There was no sample size calculation. Instead, the investigators just tried to enroll as many patients as possible. So today's results, as I said, are interim, and they were released after review by the executive group, which had a chance to see them in this open-label study. So Eric, I just want to comment on one aspect of the design uh, associated with these adaptive trials. Though these results are interim, to some degree, all results from this trial may be interim. Because the way in which the design is, arms are added and subtracted when efficacy or futility or harm is seen in a given arm. And the value of this kind of design is that it can continually assess different compounds. But the study by its design doesn't end because it's modular. And that does create somewhat of a paradox in how we think of research, where you have a study, a protocol, a sample size, an end point, and a finality. While this kind of design 
doesn't quite fit into that box and has certain weaknesses because of that, but certain strengths because of its flexibility to be able to assess different concepts. Lindsay, as you point out, this is a rather unconventional RCT. Usually we know when a study is going to start and stop. That's what the power calculations give us. They give us a sample size, so we know what our power is going to be to see a result. And obviously, in a perfect world, we'd like to have a double-blinded study. But this is far from a perfect world. A lot of this was being done during the initial outbreak, the initial surge, particularly in Europe, in the European centers that were included. And so, therefore, there was a very practical aspect to this. And that does provide some limitations. Nevertheless, this is, to some extent, a real-world study. So you've said that some of the drugs were stopped for futility. What were the overall results of the trial? I think there are a couple of takeaways. First, although the trial was large, there was very good follow-up, and we know the outcomes for the vast majority of patients. Because of the varying availability of drugs and the early stoppage of many of the arms, there were unequal numbers of participants in each arm. But as this trial has begun early in the epidemic, there were a very large number of deaths. There were more than 1,200 deaths during the study. And unfortunately, the outcomes were remarkably similar for all the drugs. None of them approved the mortality rate, the primary outcome for the study. This largely held true in sensitivity and subgroup analyses. And in keeping with that, there were no real differences in the rate of mechanical ventilation or length of hospital stay, although the latter is confounded a bit by the fact that this was an open-label study. So some of that is similar to the results of other trials that we've seen, but the results with remdesivir are notable. Lindsay, you and your co-authors wrote an editorial about this study. So how do you put these results in context? Well, Steve, I think as Eric has noted, there are aspects of the design of this study that require special attention. It's an open-label, multi-center, multi-country, global study with a very simple set of endpoints to collect so it could be done quickly and across all of these disparate environments early in the pandemic when much was not known. And that kind of design is very attractive because the speed with which it could be stood up and the nature of the endpoint that we all think is most valuable, which is mortality, and which is easy to assess across domains. But it does require us to think about what do we learn and how do we apply these data? Because not only is there the variability that we're used to in studies where different individual patients may respond differently to a given treatment, and that's why we do RCTs. But there's added elements of variability across countries, hospitals, healthcare systems, treatments available, infrastructure, and a changing baseline of treatment. And that makes it challenging to interpret these results in this kind of trial. On the other hand, the outcome of mortality is a very robust and clinically directive outcome. So I think that these data inform us that the four drugs studied did not have strong evidence or any evidence of a mortality benefit. If there are more refined benefits, such as with remdesivir has been suggested in the ACT-1 trial where it can shorten length of stay, that's much more difficult to assess in this kind of design. And that leaves us in the community balancing the endpoint we most value, 
which is saving lives, with more nuanced endpoints that can be important in certain circumstances in terms of time to recovery. And that requires you know, refined analyses of these two data sets, which are not directly comparable. What many people have focused on, Lindsay, in this trial is a result for remdesivir. It's not a surprise that the three other drugs didn't work. But remdesivir, which is a drug which recently received FDA approval and is receiving widespread use in the U.S., failed to hit on any of the endpoints that the solidarity investigators looked at. As you said, this is complicated. The trial was not really powered in any way or designed to look at the same endpoints uh, that a previous RCT had looked at, which appeared to show a benefit for remdesivir, although not a convincing benefit when it comes to mortality, really only in length of hospital stay. But this does raise the question of the role for remdesivir in therapy. And I think that at the very least, once again reminds us that this is not a miracle drug and that it helps us put boundaries around how much success we can expect from remdesivir. Right now, we don't have that miracle drug. So remdesivir is what we've got, but it's not going to make a profound difference. I mean, Eric, along those lines, the nature of the ACT-1 study with substantial resources, high-resolution data collection, the benefits of a double-blind RCT are valuable. But we need to look at that in the context of what Solidarity tells us, as you suggest, which is much lower resolution data collection, open label, but done very quickly in a very broad set of communities that represent the world a little bit more diversely. And we have to look at these data very carefully because as you suggest, what do we learn that helps us take care of patients better with mortality being the endpoint that we all care about the most and how other endpoints that don't reach the level of mortality influence care is something we have to look at very carefully given cost-benefit ratios that we have to think about as we deliver care. So looking at this broadly, Lindsay, I know that you've been seeing hospitalized patients throughout the outbreak. Eric, you were last on the consult service in the spring at the height of the last surge in Boston, but I know you'll be back in the hospital again this month. What has changed and how do you both approach patients differently now than you did six, eight months ago? Certainly the biggest change since the spring has been the apparent decrease in the death rate. It's not entirely clear why this is, but it's probably multifactorial. A large part, of course, is demographics. The outbreak has shifted to younger, lower-risk people who are being infected at higher rates, and there are fewer of those really deadly outbreaks in nursing homes, in part because of better infection control procedures going on in those institutions. In the hospital, the biggest changes that might contribute are probably the change in our standard care procedures that are more suited to these patients. These range from very simple measures like prone positioning to more aggressive interventions like the highest tech procedures like ECMO. The one big change is that most hospitals now have PPE, at least adequate amounts of PPE, enough so that caregivers can be reassured that they can safely care for patients and they're able to spend time with patients. And I think that might make a big difference. But of course, what I haven't mentioned in that list are specific therapies. It's not clear how much of an impact these are having. We just heard from Lindsay about the solidarity trial 
in which remdesivir failed to reduce mortality, which has really been the theme in several studies of that drug. And that leaves only one drug that's been shown to have an impact on mortality, that's dexamethasone. And while that's an important drug, it still has an only a modest effect, and that's only in the subgroup of patients who are sicker. So there are some other therapies that might decrease morbidity, but none have yet been shown to have an impact on survival. And there are several putative agents that have been tested that have shown no efficacy at all. So I think we're doing much better in caring for patients, but we're not doing much better in treating the virus or treating the pathology that results from the virus. I think another factor that may impact our understanding of the severity of illness and the spectrum of illness is the increase in testing that we're able to do and have done over the last few months. So we identify a spectrum of illness a little bit better rather than the sickest among us. There are also some suggestions that the virus may have changed slightly, although it's unclear what role that may play in transmissibility versus severity of illness. But I think another point that you raise, Eric, that we have to think carefully about as clinicians taking care of patients is the Goldilocks issue. As we understand the pathogenesis of illness, where there are direct viral effects and where there are immunopathology, which may occur at different phases of illness, our treatments may be applied with differential success during those phases. The point with dexamethasone, there's a suggestion that given too early, that may increase harm, while given later may lead to improved survival. These are subtle findings in the recovery report, but they raise issues that we have to think carefully about in disease pathogenesis, and that the same treatment may have differential effects depending where the person is in their illness. This has come up with the monoclonal antibodies. And what role do they play early in illness or later in illness? If the individual is mounting their own adaptive humoral response, might that influence what augmenting the humoral response might do? So I think part of what we're learning, Steve, is that the different treatments may have a differential effect given where a patient is in their illness and what kind of disease pathogenesis is going on. And that's a terrific nod to science in our improving our understanding of the biology of illness and targeted treatment. It's very frustrating at the bedside where you just want to pull something off the shelf and help the patient get better faster. But that's the scientific process and where we need to do systematic investigation to get it just right, not too hot, not too cold, but just right as to where treatment will lead to benefit given where a given patient is in their illness. So given all of that, how have your recommendations to caregivers who are at the bedside changed since the spring? What are you recommending now? There's a pretty substantial gap between what we knew then and what we know now. Unfortunately, a lot of what we know now is negative. In the spring, many patients, both inpatients and outpatients, were being treated with hydroxychloroquine, an agent that we now know is not active. We were constantly considering the use of tussilizumab, a drug that hasn't yet shown activity in trials. And we were often advising against the use of corticosteroids, which at this point appear to be the most effective agents, at least in patients with severe disease. So the big lesson for me is humility. Until we have data, we're making guesses. Eric, I agree. To me, what has transpired is a four-letter word, data. 
what I was doing in March and April was wrong. It was the best thinking at the time, but we had no data to guide us. And the generation of data to bring a scientific process to which therapies afford benefit versus risk is critical. And I think we have learned that. And dexamethasone is a terrific example. Many thought it was a really bad idea early on. And we as a community were wrong. And the recovery trial, a simple countrywide open label, limited data collection study was able to demonstrate in a rapid fashion information that guides our thinking. And I think that the solidarity trial is another example of a simple trial, albeit these simple trials are quite complex in what we learn, given how simple they are. But I think that generating data, including in Act One and all of the studies that have systematically generated data, they have informed us as to how these therapies work in patients with significant SARS-CoV-2 illness. And so what I've learned, and I guess it reinforces the first principles data. In that respect, in the meantime, the FDA continues to supply us with agents that are being issued EUAs that we don't understand how to use. And so a lot of the questions that I assume I'll be getting in the hospital are going to be about monoclonal antibodies, about convalescent plasma, about baricitinib, which recently got an EUA. And as of today, at least, we don't have the data upon which we can make very clear recommendations. So there are still guesses to make, and we'll still be making them because that's our job. In the absence of data, we still have to make decisions. But I'm hoping that we're going to be learning a lot more and a lot of that very quickly. Eric, I agree, but I have to reflect on as a care provider, if I do something, I feel better than if I do nothing. But I reflect on March and April when we were prescribing hydroxychloroquine, we were doing something. Did it actually help our patients? And so we are making those same decisions today. And we have to think very carefully about the strength of the evidence upon which we're making those decisions with the different agents we're using and how we can systematically collect data so that tomorrow's decisions are better than today's. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.